It's Thursday, December 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Amazon's home security company, Ring, has made partnerships with local law enforcement all across the country. And the result is starting to look like an Amazon Ring police surveillance network. Amazon gives local police Ring products, the police encourage adoption of the Ring platform, and then people give police access to their doorbell cams. Carolyn Haskins, writer at Vice's Motherboard, joins us for more. Next, a million Americans are arrested every year for drunken driving. And in many cases, the breathalyzer test is what seals the deal. But a recent New York Times investigation has found that these devices can give skewed results because of human error or because the devices haven't been properly calibrated. There have been so many errors that judges in Massachusetts and New Jersey have thrown out more than 30,000 breath tests in the past 12 months alone. Stacy Cowley, reporter for the New York Times, joins us for why we can't always trust the breathalyzer test. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So Ring is required to provide access to this law enforcement neighborhood portal, which is basically an interactive map, and police can use it to see the approximate location of every Ring product in the town and request footage directly from those people. And Ring also has to give the police department 15 free doorbell surveillance cameras and they also are obligated to offer this discount on Ring cameras. Joining us now is Caroline Haskins, writer at Vice's Motherboard. Thanks for joining us, Caroline. Thanks for having me. We've talked about this before, how Amazon is going into a lot of partnerships with local law enforcement, whether it be through their security company Ring or even some other type of facial recognition programs. There at Motherboard, some of your reporting showed that Amazon and Ring have partnered with at least 200 law enforcement agencies around the country, possibly more than that. And what they're doing is they're requiring some of these departments to basically advertise their surveillance cameras in exchange for free Ring products and access to a portal that allows police to request footage from these cameras. Tell us a little bit more about this. Right. So I obtained a memorandum of understanding and other contract documents between Ring, which is Amazon's home surveillance company, and the police department of Lakeland, Florida. And the memorandum of understanding requires uh, different things from the, the police department and from Ring. So Ring is required to provide access to this law enforcement neighborhood portal, which is basically an interactive map, and police can use it to see the approximate location of every Ring product in the town and request footage directly from those people. And Ring also has to give the police department 15 free doorbell surveillance cameras, and they also are obligated to offer this discount on Ring cameras based off of the number of people in the city that download Neighbors, which is an accompanying app offered by Ring. In exchange, in order to get access to this law enforcement portal and these free cameras, etc., there's a clause in this memorandum that requires police to, quote, encourage adoption, close quote, of Ring products. So basically, this means that it's a private-public agreement between a public law enforcement agency and a private company like Ring. And the result is a completely privatized surveillance network that police have the ability to tap into. They do need permission from the people in order to get the footage, but the extra added step of legal protection from the warrant doesn't exist there. 
and it exists in this vague, unregulated space in terms of a privatized surveillance network that police have sort of this direct administrative access to. How are police expected to make this engagement with the local community just out and about when they're talking to locals? Or is there like a a broader program that they're using to uh, make this outreach? Right. Part of it is that they're supposed to tell people to download Neighbors and be explicit that if they download this app, then they could have a chance to get a certain ring product. And what certain police departments have done is they do other types of programs like raffles or giveaways and stuff like that in order to make people aware that these products exist. Um, And in terms of the free doorbell cameras, I mean, that's a pretty direct way for police to distribute um, these products from their own possession to people in their own community. And there's been other reporting, too, that this is so tightly coordinated that even what police officers say about Amazon's ring has to either be scripted or approved by the company themselves. Basically, if they're going to be making posts, say, announcing that they joined Neighbors or discussing their partnership in any way whatsoever, um, there has to be sort of email communication between police and Ring. And that's why another part of the partnership requires police to assign certain Ring-specific roles. So these roles, it includes a press coordinator, a social media manager, a community relations coordinator. And these are basically point people within the police department that are responsible for communicating about all things related to the ring partnership to the public. I mean, it's an interesting thing that's happening. A lot of people buy these products thinking you're improving the safety of your home, but you're really getting involved into this Amazon ring police surveillance network type of thing. At Ring, we want to make neighborhoods safer by keeping you informed. The Ring Neighbors app is a new way for neighbors to connect and share events. Now, when something happens, you can be one of the first to know, helping you stay one step ahead of crime. Together, we can build a smarter, safer community. Welcome to the new Neighborhood Watch. There is a campaign uh, from a, a group called Fight for the Future which is giving people the opportunity to reach out to local lawmakers and tell them that they don't want this partnership going on in their communities also. So basically, Evan Greer, who's the deputy director for Fight for the Future, she put it really well. Ring's whole pitch to the public is that this would be making communities safer. But, you know, safer for whom? You know, it's important to remember that these are cameras that are proliferating in private spaces and I did a report a couple of months ago about behavior on Neighbors, which is, again, the Neighborhood Watch app. It operates a lot like Nextdoor, and racial profiling is extremely common on the app. And the app even encourages people to tag people as suspicious or strangers. And, you know, I mean, just given the reality of life in this country, a lot of these people are people of color. These are the people that are posted onto this app and people that posters are saying are suspicious or potentially dangerous. I mean, don't only just think about like the privacy concerns or these relationships with law enforcement. Think about what type of relationship you want to have with your community and whether these cameras are promoting that type of relationship. Carolyn Haskins, writer, advices, motherboard. Thank you very much for joining us. Where can people catch more of your stuff? Right. So you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Caroline H.A. underscore. And you can also follow Motherboard. It's Vice's tech site, which is just at Motherboard on Twitter.
Thank you, Caroline. Thanks for having me. A lot of times when you see large numbers of tests get thrown out, it's human error. Someone somewhere along the line made a mistake in how the machines were set up and used. And when that happens, the results can be pretty catastrophic. Massachusetts just had to throw out every single breath test done in the state for eight years, which is a pretty sweeping result. Joining us now is Stacy Cowley, reporter for The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Stacy. Thanks for having me. Every year, there are more than a million drunken driving arrests in America But the devices that police use to test driver's breath, the widely known breathalyzer, may not be working all the time. A lot of times they're not calibrated right. They're throwing off false readings. There's a lot of stuff going on with these things. And there's been thousands of convictions that could be at risk because of the inaccuracy of these machines. Stacey, you and a few colleagues did an extensive look into court records and things, how these breathalyzers are working. Tell us a little bit about what you learned. So we spent close to a year digging through this because there was a lot of material we had to go through to kind of get our heads around this issue. And what really got us going on it was in two states in particular, in New Jersey and Massachusetts, we've seen tens of thousands of breath tests in each of those states be invalidated because of legal rulings and challenges to them. So we started taking a closer look about what exactly is going on. And what we found in those two states in particular is that a lot of times when you see large numbers of tests get thrown out, it's human error. Someone somewhere along the line made a mistake in how the machines were set up and used. And when that happens, the results can be pretty catastrophic. Massachusetts just had to throw out every single breath test done in the state for eight years, which is a pretty sweeping result. Yeah, as you mentioned, a calibration has a lot to do with this. In some cases, the breathalyzer was giving results that were 20 to 40 percent too high. Tell us a little bit of background on how these breathalyzers work. Way the breathalyzer works. It's based on a scientific principle known as Henry's Law. And basically, there was this realization that you could use breath to make an approximation of someone's blood alcohol level. And when it's done correctly, it works pretty well. The scientific principle is correct. Judges and scientists have taken a close look at this for decades, and scientifically, it holds up. The challenge, of course, though, is that a breath test machine is a piece of technology, and no computer is perfect. There can be mistakes. So for years, lawyers have been trying to take a closer look and say, okay, How do these machines that police officers use actually work? And part of the challenge around that has been that the manufacturers treat this as proprietary. They don't want people to take a closer look at this. So it typically requires a whole lot of litigation to even get a hold of one of these machines if you're not a police officer and a whole lot of litigation to get a closer look at the software. And in general, when that's happened and there's been large court cases over these things, generally what experts find is they find a few errors. They generally don't find catastrophic errors. Pretty much every time this has gone to a state Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has decided, hey, the machines are generally reliable. But in every case, there's been some little errors that come to light. Where things more often go wrong, though, is that the machines are scientific instruments. They have to be maintained correctly, programmed correctly, used correctly. And quite often, when lawyers look under the hood, they find that something's gone wrong in that process. So where we've had large numbers of tests thrown out, it's typically because there was a human mistake somewhere in how the machines were used. Part of the other thing is that there's about two dozen companies making these testing machines. So standards and regulations are different from obviously state to state and company to company with these things and calibrations are different for each machine. So it can really kind of become a big web of confusion there. Some of these testing machines go for about $10,000 or more. Big contracts with state police crime labs are could be worth millions of dollars. And one of the biggest questions that kind of arises from all of this is, so 
a lot of these machines can be miscalibrated. So there's a lot of miss, uh, you know, a lot of people who were um, uh, charged with drunken driving that maybe shouldn't have. And in the case of, as you said, Massachusetts and New Jersey, where some of these cases are being thrown out because of these false readings, there could be a bunch of people that are getting off the hook that are actually dangerous people who are repeat offenders of drunk driving. One of the real challenges when one of these things blows up in a big way, like happened in Massachusetts, is you really end up with a double-edged sword there. And then in Massachusetts, because these tests have thrown out, they've got 28,000 convictions, 28,000 people who were convicted based on tests that the court now acknowledges are unreliable. And that sort of leaves you with people trapped on both sides. You've got potentially innocent drivers who are now facing punishment for things that they may not have done. But you also have a huge number of drivers in that 28,000 convictions who probably were drunk, who probably did do it, and are now potentially going to be able to have their case is reopened and potentially overturned because of this problem with the technology. The article that you wrote about this is very extensive, very good. There was a few moments where I was reading and I just kind of said, wow, to myself. One example that you gave with kind of the difficulties of all this was in the state of Washington, and they chose to use this product. It's called the Alcatest 9510. And this goes through with how things are calibrated. And I guess there, they didn't even bother to have anybody evaluate the software. One of the state toxicologists in some of these documents that you were able to find, they said, well, we just threw caution to the wind, proceeded without paying up front for an independent evaluation and just kind of see what happens with it. I think that was one of the things that we were a little surprised by in doing our investigation is we kept coming across what seemed like lax oversight of these things. And the reality is, you know, states are resource constrained. They're strapped. They don't have endless time and money and expertise to throw at these problems. So we found that in quite a lot of them, there's this sort of instinct to just trust that the machine's going to work, to not want to look too closely, because that's an expensive and hard thing to do. So yeah, Washington State was one example where they chose not to spend what would have been about $80,000 to hire independent experts to independently review the device's software. They decided that wasn't a necessary safeguard. And what happened after that? Because a local judge did grant a request from a defense lawyer to review some of the software and the people that ended up making a report about this, they wrote a nine-page draft report called Defective Design Equals Reasonable Doubt. And they kind of took this thing apart and realized that there was problems from the beginning. They did what they started down an evaluation. They took a very close look at the software source code and compiled a report saying, hey, here are some potential problems with this. And then they made a legal mistake. They went and took that report to a convention of defense lawyers. And the company came back to them and said, hey, we only gave you this software under a protective order, under a seal. You aren't supposed to use for any commercial purposes what you've learned. And we think going and talking to defense lawyers and trying to market yourself as potentially an expert witness for hire, hey, that's a commercial purpose. You can't do that. And facing the prospect of getting basically sued into oblivion by a company that had a lot more money than they did. They basically retracted the report and shut down their company. But that was a good example of how there is a lot of secrecy around these things and efforts to get a closer look at exactly what the machines are doing are really complicated and are often heavily opposed by the companies. You mentioned there was a lot of lax oversight in some of these instances. In Colorado, there was kind of a different thing that happened. One of the people that were running the labs and running these machines were feeding false information into these. I think this was the one that was giving false readings or something like that. This caused this whole thing for Colorado to have to go back to the drawing board with them. 
One of the challenges with these things is that they almost never come to light unless you have a motivated whistleblower or a lot of very expensive litigation. So two of the examples we cite in our article, in Colorado, there was a lab employee who said that, hey, the process by which we calibrated and rolled out our fleet of new machines when we switched devices was really chaotic and potentially really problematic. He said that a bunch of people calibrated machines using his signature that he never touched. The lab director's signature was appearing on certifications that she didn't know her signature was appearing on. So there was a lot of issues there. And then Washington, D.C. was a similar situation where they brought in an outside contractor who tested their devices and found that every machine was giving results 20 to 40 percent too high. That's something that probably would never have come to light had he not really prominently gone around internally and said, oh, my God, this is a huge problem. You have to announce this and disclose this. I think that's one of the concerns we hear about these things is that it really relies on someone internally speaking up and doing the right thing or you just never find out about it. One of the stories that you shared and you kind of follow throughout the entire article was that of a man named Matthew Motter, and he got caught with a breathalyzer. I think he blew a 0.08 and he went on a years long journey to kind of try to figure this whole thing out. And in his case, where it was being litigated, everybody was right on that breathalyzer test. You blew over the amount, you're kind of done. But his case specifically was one of those ones in Massachusetts where it ended up being that it was thrown out later. Tell us a little bit about his story. His was an interesting one because, again, he was someone who blew right on the legal limit, 0.08. And it's an interestingly ambiguous case because I honestly can't tell you, was he drunk or not? I don't think anyone can. He absolutely insists he wasn't. He thinks there must have been something wrong with the technology. And in the end, after this five-year legal fight, his breath test ended up being one of the ones that was thrown out in Massachusetts because the courts decided that the process through which machines had been calibrated was not reliable. Not meaning that the results were necessarily flawed, but meaning that scientifically they couldn't be sure they were correct. And in court, you can't use scientific results if you can't prove that they're accurate. So his breath test was tossed out and he was eventually able to get that drunk driving charge off of his record. But it was certainly telling. I mean, that was a five-year fight that cost him about $30,000. These are crimes that carry heavy penalties and are very expensive to fight. So what do we do with all this information now for anybody who has gone through this and maybe has gotten caught drunk driving and the breathalyzer nailed them? They're probably really pissed off hearing some of this stuff for other people who are just kind of worried in general that they might get caught up. They might be cautious of this. But as you said in the article, between two states, Massachusetts and New Jersey alone, at least 42,000 convictions are at risk because of some of this stuff, of some of these faulty readings or miscalibrations, things like that. So what do we make of all this? Part of why this was a challenging story for us is that there's no easy answers here. This is a really complicated technology. The more we delved into it, the more we're like, wow, there's a whole bunch of very specialized issues that this brings up legally, forensically, scientifically. So the takeaways we kind of came away from it were, first of all, the easiest way to avoid getting caught for drunk driving. Don't get in the car and drive. 100%. Drinking. Yeah. That's the simplest thing. If you do have a breath test that you think, hey, something could be off here consulting a local lawyer is definitely the best way to go. I mean, this is something that requires a lot of specialized legal and scientific knowledge and really finding a local expert who has those skills is very useful. We're also hoping that the article will potentially draw judges and policymakers and lawmakers to take a closer look at the oversight because really to deal with this problem systemically, these sorts of things don't start to get fixed without closer oversight. And that's what I think we want to see happen here is these are sensitive forensic instruments. They need to be maintained correctly. Labs need to have the resources in terms of finances and manpower to be able to do that. So we really hope that policymakers and lawmakers will keep that in mind. Stacy Cowley, reporter for The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your interest.
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.